Our first reading tonight comes from Psalm 5, and it's on the screen if you'd like to follow along. Psalm 5. For the director of music for pipes, a psalm of David. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God. For, for to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogance cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. But I, by your great love, can come into your house in reverence, I bow down toward your holy temple. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Not a word from their mouths can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they tell lies. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favour as with a shield." Second readings from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, and it's in your booklets. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already briefly written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. In him, through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. 
Steve and Leah. The question this evening is, where do we see the glorious victory of the Lord Jesus? Where do we see it? Is it in the, the gospel message? Is that where we see it? Well, if so, how come so few people are being converted? Do we see it in the church, in our newly refurbished building and excellent music, our six growing congregations full of capable people? Is that where we see it? Or when, when the church makes its voice heard in the public arena and gets its way in the political matters, is that where we see the glorious victory of Jesus? You know what most of my friends think of the church? Um, they think it's an outdated club for the lonely and gullible. Um, it has no place in the public arena, and we're kidding ourselves if we think we actually do have a place, and frankly, they wish we'd just shut up and help the poor people. So, where do we see the glorious victory of Christ? The Ephesians might have been asking a similar kind of question because they've been reading this letter from Paul and then all of us and they've been sorry they've been told that Jesus is glorious and victorious and he's creating a new humanity we've just heard all of that stuff and then all of a sudden they get verse 1 of chapter 3 For this reason I Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus blah blah, blah. hang on hang on to <laughs> Paul what is a prisoner you're in prison? The Lord Jesus is victorious. Your master, he's victorious king. You're in prison? And our section is more or less taken up with answering that concern. Uh, he concludes with that same topic in verse 13, if you have a look down in, in your booklets. Paul says, I ask you, therefore, considering all that's gone before, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. There's an apparent contradiction to them between um, Christ's glorious victory and Paul's chains. And they could get uh, discouraged about that. And friends, for us, I think there's an apparent contradiction in, in some respect between the glorious victory of Christ and the weakness of the church. And we could get discouraged about that. And the way Paul responds to this issue uh, is basically to say... Jesus' glory is a hidden one. So in verses 2 to 6, he tells them that the message about Jesus is glorious, but that not many people can see it. And then in the second half, verses 7 to 12, he says that the church has a glorious role, but the world won't really see it. The heavenly powers will see it. And so he concludes a similar kind of thing about his chains in verse 13. He says, these chains are your glory, hidden glory. And we're going to have to do a bit of work to see how that is the case. But first of all, Paul says uh, from verses 2 to 6, what I'm preaching is hidden glory. I'll try and be brief on this point and a little longer on the second one. Uh, Paul tells us basically what he is preaching, the content of his gospel, in verse 6. He says, This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body. 
and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. You see, the background, obviously, friends, is, is Israel. Um, and God had chosen Israel out of all the nations of the world and poured his promises upon them. I will bless you. I will be your God for all of eternity. But friends, unless you're Jewish here this evening, that promise was not for you. It was just for God's people and the, the Jewish people, and we were without hope and without God in the world. And yet, as we heard last week, Paul's message is no longer. Now, through the victory of Christ, the doors have been flung open. Those promises are for you. You can be one of God's people, members together with God's people, Israel. And so we get all of those promises. I've just been um, thinking a, bit, a little bit about this uh, during, the, during the weekend and just being amazed at the way that we get a new history. You know, we don't often, I, I don't know about you, but I think often Christians don't make much of the Old Testament. They're like, oh, doesn't have anything to say for me. But friends, that, that becomes our history. We have a God, as we heard in chapter one, who chose us before the creation of the world. Friends, you have a, your history is God at work through all of history for your salvation. And we have a new future. Because now we are sharers together with Israel in the promises for the future that God will be our God and will bless us. The best part of all of this is, is that we get God. Would you look down at verse 12 with me? In Jesus and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. In my last uh, job, I had a, um, an office in, in the home, um, which was a little bit difficult with two little boys. They'd um, often kind of just charge on in. It was, it was good until they got tall enough to reach the door handle, and then they'd just come on in and start bothering me. And my son, uh, Ned, the elder one, he uh, learned this thing where he'd say, I'd say, Ned, I'm really sorry, I'm working. And he'd say, that's all right, I'm working too. <laughs> which meant a minute on the couch reading something, and then, yeah, yeah bothering me again. And I kind of got torn. I was like, yeah. I'd get annoyed, but I kind of, I kind of wanted to get rid of them really, but I wanted to be nice. And I, sometimes I think, friends, we get that feeling with God. You know, I can come before him, but you know, I don't want to bother him too much because you know, he doesn't really like having me around. I'm a pretty troublesome child. And friends, here we are told that we can bust open the door of our Father in Heaven's study Come in, sit on his desk and distract him as much as we like because he wants us there. We can come before him with boldness and confidence as we are with our issues. We can do it. He wants us there. Um, I hope, friends, you know that freedom and confidence to come before God. Um, this is what we have in the gospel. A new history, a new future and a wonderful access to God. And yet, friends, this, this glorious message of the gospel doesn't really answer the Ephesians' question. Because they're wondering, well, Paul, if it's such a glorious message, why are you locked up in jail? We might ask, if it's such a glorious message, why are there so few of us? And the answer Paul gives is, well, 
The gospel is a mystery. Not a kind of a whodunit, Miss Marple kind of thing, but it's been forgotten. Like a blueprint plan that was kind of rolled up and put in the attic somewhere and it's kind of gathering dust. It was in the Old Testament plans that, that God's promises would be open to the whole world, but Israel have kind of moved away from the Old Testament plans and it's been forgotten. No one was expecting this to happen. It was a mystery. Did you catch that? He said it three times. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 6. And so, like we read in verses 3 and 5, it had to be revealed. God had to get those plans out of the attic and say, hey, everyone, this is the plan, and it's happening in Jesus. It had to be revealed. So verse 5. This mystery was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. There was a whole lot of Jews in the first century who hadn't had the mystery revealed to them. And so, for example, in Acts 22, there was a, when a, there was a group of Jews who heard that Paul, well, he was sharing the family inheritance with Gentiles, you know, giving the family inheritance to the enemies. And they were, they were furious. They were taking off their cloaks, picking up dust and throwing it in the air, and they had Paul uh, imprisoned, arrested and imprisoned. But in verse 13, Paul responds to this imprisonment. And he says, Don't be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. See, Paul's imprisonment embodies the message. Against all um, the kind of patterns of his day, a a Jewish um, Pharisee is in prison for Gentiles, the enemy. He's willing to go to prison for them. Why? Because they're no longer separate. Because the Gentiles have been included in God's people and God's promises, in God's history and God's future. They can come to him now. It's their glory. Friends, I just want to throw out one brief um, kind of implication of this fact. That is for evangelism, for for telling other people about Jesus. You see, friends, the gospel still has to be revealed. It's a glorious message, but people won't necessarily get it. We sometimes think we can argue people into getting it. And if we just have all the right arguments, then they've got to get it, surely. We'll pin them, we'll corner them with our arguments. Then they'll have to agree. It doesn't work that way. God has to open people's eyes. So friends, sometimes maybe just save your breath and pray instead. And yet I do want to say, friends, the gospel is still glorious. So tell it, speak it. It's a wonderful truth. People need to hear it. The hope of every heart is Jesus. They just don't know it. And I'm going to take this opportunity to make a shameless plug for the Easter postcards. (laughs) Friends, we would love if some people who, probably local people if possible, but if you're not local and can do this, please do. If some people could take bundles of these, which are around the corner, and just deliver them around the local area. You'll be given, there's clear instructions about what to do with them. Um, It's just an easy way to give local people the opportunity to hear this glorious message.
We've made this announcement at three services, and I don't think any bundles have been taken. Let's do it, team. There's only 15 bundles. Let's do it. I'm tempted to ask people right now to do it, but I'll, I'll save you the embarrassment. <laughs> be wonderful if you could do that, friends. Well, that's the first half of our passage. Paul speaks about the glorious message, but it's hidden glory. Well, now in the second half of the passage, Paul moves from the message to the church. You see, Paul preaches his message in order to build the church, and in turn, the church has a glorious role to play. So this is why Paul preaches. Would you read with me from verse 8? We'll see it sort of leads to verse 10. Paul says, Although I am the, the, less than the least of all God's, the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. It's a good way of putting it. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which was for ages past, ke- uh, was kept hidden in God, who created all. And this is the key part. His intent of all that was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul's preaching is to build the church, and the church has a glorious role to play. They are to proclaim victory of Christ to the heavenly realms. But there's a lot of ideas in those few verses, isn't there? It's a bit of a mouthful. It's hard to kind of just say in one sentence. Um, So I want to try to take that bag of snakes, those two verses, and try to lay them out straight. Um, I'm going to ask five questions about those two verses. Um, Who, what, when, where, and how? And the first and last question will be the longest. So first, who? Who are these powers and authorities in the heavenly realms that Paul speaks of? And they come up a fair bit in Ephesians. Well, friends, in our day, I I assume you will agree with this, but it's kind of a little bit weird just to believe in God. A good friend of mine, Bogues, uh, once um, asked me uh, if I believed in the devil. You know, God, sure, I've kind of come to terms with that, Dan, a bit weird, but okay. (laughs) Do you believe in the devil? (laughs) Imagine what Bogues would have thought if I told him about the heavenly authorities. He would never take me seriously again, I wouldn't think. But, friends, for Paul, things were different in his day. In his day, people were just they were conscious that in the heavenly realms, things were happening, and it had implications for their day-to-day. And so we've heard already that our blessings, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. That's kind of going on. We've been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And now in those heavenly realms, there's these powers and authorities. And for Paul, these powers and authorities kind of, they sort of influenced the patterns of thinking and behavior that make up a culture, kind of, something like that. Uh, These powers and authorities in the heavenly realms, they were supposed to, under God, keep things ordered, the patterns ordered for the sake of human flourishing. Uh, 
that, to maintain the patterns of diversity and creativity and peace and unity and life. But friends like us, they fell into sin. We must realize that the effects of sin are cosmic. And so now they're opposed to God and opposed to humanity's flourishing. And so Paul would see their influence in the patterns of culture and and behavior. For example, today he might see their their influence in in the ideology of materialism, that material stuff is going to make us happy. He might see their influence in, in the social pattern of men no longer really knowing what it means to be men and so being soft or violent. He'd see it in in the system that seems to keep the poor in poverty even while it tries to help them out of poverty. Or or in in the inexplicable way that corporations can be full of good people, making good decisions, and yet still somehow exploit people and the environment. Somehow it happens. Paul might see in those things the influence of these powers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Uh, Now, friends, some of you might be thinking um, of a verse in in Acts 17 at this point, Acts 17, verse 20, which says, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears. Maybe. It's kind of different. I don't know if we talk about that a lot. And Paul doesn't talk about this kind of thing a lot, does he? It's appropriate that he does for the people in Ephesus who are very conscious of the heavenly realms and spiritual things. But friends, he doesn't talk too much about details and biographies of these uh, powers and authorities, but he wants us to see what they do. The point is, there's these patterns of thinking and behavior in our world that aren't good for humanity. And they're not just bad, they're boring. These patterns in society of just kind of always reinforcing similarities and homogeneity. You know, everyone seems to be the same and they eliminate diversity and creativity. That's, that's what these, these powers and authorities do. That's the who question. The second question I want to ask about these two verses is what? What does God want to make known to these beings? Well, look down at verse 10 with me. Again, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose. God wants them to see his wisdom, his manifold, diverse, multifaceted wisdom. It's anything but kind of monochrome. And his wisdom takes action in his eternal purpose. Do you remember the eternal purpose? Chapter 1, verse 10 of Ephesians, we heard that a few weeks ago. It says that his eternal purpose is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on the earth under Christ. To grab all that diversity and bring it together under Christ. That's God's wise eternal purpose. So when? When's he going to do that plan? Verse 10 again. His intent was that now. 
You see, friends, God's eternal purpose isn't sort of in the back pocket, ready to be pulled out at the end of time. Well, bang, there you go. That was my plan. No, it started now. See, verse 11, he says his eternal purpose, which, was, which he accomplished, past tense, in Jesus Christ, it's being accomplished. Jesus has got the, the, the ball rolling and it's gathering speed. Uh, this is what our last two weeks have been all about. That in Jesus, um, people are being reconciled to God and to each other. They're being united together under Christ. A new humanity is being formed so that God's wise, eternal purpose is happening now. Where? That's the next question. Where? Verse 10, through the church. It's happening in the church. I got a wonderful um, experience of this a couple of years ago. Uh, I spent a year in a church out near Fairfield, um, and, and you couldn't kind of step through the doors without seeing God's eternal purpose happening. You'd see grandmas, babies, single people, married people, lawyers, a fair few unemployed people. Uh, you'd see Assyrians, Syrians, um, you'd see Croatians and Macedonians, which was interesting. You'd see uh, quiet, give me my personal space, Asians, as well as kind of passionate, I don't know what personal space is, South Americans. Um, we had to have a talk about that, and some of them hugged afterwards. It was beautiful. But they were all together, under Christ, worshipping Jesus together. It was beautiful. This kind of tapestry of a cross-section of the world, united under Jesus. It was like a picture of the end of time. Every tribe, nation, and tongue gathered together in praise of Jesus. But it was now, today. And friends, it happens amongst us in our diversity of, of backgrounds and histories. It's happening, happening here. That thing that the whole world is trying to do, world peace, happens in the church. So that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, that is his eternal purpose that he's done in Jesus, his wisdom is being made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly realms. They don't like it. They don't want his eternal purpose to happen. They don't want to come under Jesus. But when they look at the church, they can't avoid the conclusion. Jesus is winning. He's victorious. His eternal purpose is happening. Friends, people out there in the world might not see that when they look at the church. They think we're kind of pathetic, usually. But it's a, it's a hidden glory. The heavenly realms see it. So the last question is, how? How do we as the church make known to the heavenly realms God's wisdom? It kind of sounds dramatic, doesn't it? You know, it sounds kind of crazy. Oh, we've got to drive out demons or something, don't we? Well, maybe we've got to like, make this massive church that can't be ignored or win all the political fights so that Christian morals are upheld. Then the rulers will see that Jesus is victorious, surely. Well, no. How do we do it? Just by being the church. That's kind of it. Just be 
the church, God's new humanity. Live out being God's new humanity. Refuse to live by those old patterns that the world has laid down and follow that new pattern that's been laid down by Jesus. Refuse to be defined by the patterns of the rulers and authorities and instead be defined by Jesus and what he's done for you in the gospel. Friends, that, when we do that, that makes the heavenly powers worried. When they see their patterns being ignored, subverted, overturned by this bunch of people called the church, that gets them worried. Does this sound ridiculous? That that is our role as a church? That we have such a significant role? It sounds ridiculous to me. It sounds unbelievable. But friends, this is our hidden glory. And friends, the rest of Ephesians is actually just going to go on and teach us how to play that glorious role. The nitty-gritty of it. What does it look like? And we're going to see that playing out this glorious role can look pretty mundane. (laughs) We're going to see that it means things like telling the truth, being kind, submitting to your wife. (laughs) In a sense, submitting to your husband, loving your wife. Don't tell Paul I said that. It's going to look pretty plain, though, to live out this glorious role. The world won't be impressed, but but that's, again, this is because it's a hidden glory. And that's what's actually really grabbed me this week, friends. I, I tend to think the glory of the church is going to be seen by these big shows of power and glory to the world, where the, the newspapers start writing, wow, the church is really doing great things now. That's actually totally different. Our glory is seen by the heavenly realms, not really by the world. And we don't see our glory in our newly refurbished building. You see it in things like people giving sacrificially to the work of this new building. You don't see it in our amazing music. You see it when people in church who don't like our music still sing because we're united in Jesus. You don't really see it when people come to church and they're all like, I have my life sorted out. You see it when they're able to come along and be honest about their struggles. We don't see it in our massive growing congregations. We see it in our diversity and unity and love for each other. You're not going to see the glory of the church when the politicians agree with our definition of marriage. We'll see the glory when gay people come amongst us and experience love and acceptance and someone who's willing to walk with them through their struggles and pain. We're not going to see, we wouldn't have seen the glory of the church if Paul was made the Roman emperor. We wouldn't have seen it. But as he says in verse 13, the glory is seen when he, a Jew, is willing to go to prison for Gentiles. You see it when the patterns and structures of this world are overturned by God's people as they follow Jesus. 
That's the kind of living that subverts the patterns of our world, and it sends a message to the rulers and authorities of the, of the, in the heavenly realms that you're losing. The end is coming. Christ is victorious. A, a new people, a new humanity is arising called the church, and their Lord is going to be Lord of all. Uh, like I said, it, this, is, this has just bowled me over this week, friends. Um, just the fact that the church's mundane love for each other, our mundane kindness, humility, has such significance. Such significance. Sometimes think, you know, it doesn't matter too much if I'm kind to that person. It does. It really does. It's glorious work. Hidden glory. Well, friends, as we close, I just want to backtrack a little bit um, because this is a glorious role we have. Um, but as we get to the second half of Ephesians, we're going we're to hear that it's, it's a hard role we have, a challenging role. It's not always easy to stand against the patterns of this world. So in the midst of this difficult role, we've got to remember what we stand on as a church. Paul preached the gospel to build the church. We stand on the gospel. If we're going to continue in this glorious role, we need to stay rooted in the gospel. If we're going to not follow the patterns of the world, but follow the patterns of Jesus, we need to stay rooted in Jesus. And friends, we're actually going to um, have a chance now uh, to remember what Jesus has done for us. We're going we're to share in communion together. And as we take the bread and the wine, juice, and take it in, we're going to remember in a really physical way that we are united to Jesus. All the blessings of Jesus are ours, and all of our problems are his. We're going to remember that in him we have become the unrejectable children of God, washed clean of our sin, heirs of the universe. We're going to remember that we can approach God like Jesus can approach God, with confidence and freedom. And also as we eat together, we're going to remember that in Christ we are together, united. We all come before him as sinners saved by grace. Uh, we're going to say a confession together right now, which reminds us how it is that we come before God as sinners saved by grace. I'll just give you just a few moments just uh, to prepare yourself to say this confession and to take communion together. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for adopting us as your children and making us heirs of eternal life. In your mercy, you have washed us from our sins and made us clean in your sight. Yet we still fail to love you as we should and serve you as we ought. Forgive us our sins and renew us by your grace that we may continue to grow as members of Christ in whom alone is our salvation. Amen.